Welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Welcome to Grid Talk. This week, we're extremely pleased to have Doug Hunter, the manager of UAMPS, which stands for the Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems, talking to us from the middle of Utah in remote hill country, I, I take it, about the whole promise of modular nuclear reactors, what the technology offers, and how it may utterly transform the utility sector. The significance of this is um, as we move away from large generation stations and move towards more distributed generation to increase reliance on renewables, many wonder what the power source could be that will back up solar when the sun's not shining and wind when the wind's not blowing. And many thought leaders think that modular reactors have a role to play. Welcome, Doug. Uh, tell us um, why you think modular nuclear reactors are going to be a game changer for the energy sector. Okay, well, thank you, Murray. Um, yeah, I really do believe it is. Uh, specifically, I can give you a couple of real quick points. One, their, the size allows these uh, nuclear reactors to move very, very quickly, as quickly as combined cycle gas, or maybe even a little faster, I can explain in certain situations, uh, which is uh, way different than the existing fleet, which does have uh, problems through the fission process of moving the reactor a lot. So we have that. Plus, they're also cost competitive, both on a marginal basis, very cost competitive on a marginal basis, and they're cost competitive on an all-in cost basis with gas, and they're much cheaper, if you will, less expensive all the way around than battery technology, which could do a lot of the same thing. Now, you're a power wholesaler in uh, the Plains area, covering many states, uh, quite a big footprint. What brought you to focus on this technology? Why UAMPs? Yeah, that's a good question. We're uh, a joint action agency, 47 members in six Western states, very rural municipal rural electric cooperatives of mid-size aggregated up into a larger group for economy of scale uh, on a project basis, not an all-power requirements basis. And so, uh, well, a number of years ago, clear back, clear back to 2005, to be honest, <laughs> we started talking about the future of what the industry would look like in a regulated greenhouse market environment and started to uh, educate ourselves as to alternative technologies that could replace fossil fuel in all of its attributes, including cost as well as uh, uh, its flexibility. And uh, not to, to drag the story on, but we went through a long uh, process to where we just really decided that uh, if modular reactors could produce what they were promising, that that was probably the best thing to start to really focus on from a, a feasibility point of view and an understanding to see if we could actually uh, bring it to fruition. Uh, uh, and that's what we're, we're really doing. That's where we went. So we, we've uh, literally looked at every uh, aspect of technologies 
that are commercially viable, that was a limitation, and it had to be somewhat cost competitive, if not very cost competitive, as to uh, what we really saw as our alternative, uh, if you will, in a modified or low carbon environment, which would be combined cycle natural gas. And so we picked the mid $50 a megawatt hour area as another criteria. Um, onto the grid into that range, uh, you know, that would qualify. So it had to meet those two attributes. And, uh, the, and we've ended up, uh, selecting new scale as the technology provider for uh, small modular reactors, uh, due to the attributes they have. They currently are the only one in the licensing process. And well, I guess that helps out in making the decision as well. So, Doug, bring us up to date, if you will, on your plans to build the first test facility up in Idaho on a DOE laboratory site. What, what are the time targets? When do you hope to have it operational? Well, uh, so obviously to be able to do planning, we like to put down dates. And so currently uh, we were, were anticipating 26 uh, to 2027. We're still uh, officially on a 26, end of 26. Uh, commercialization date for the first reactor. Uh, the subsequent reactors that you put up to 12 of these in one facility. Uh, and just for modeling purpose, we assume they all go in in a, uh, a 60 day interval process. This is for modeling. They don't have to go in that way. But uh, so that would be to the end of 27, if you will, we'd have them all 12 in place. Uh, they are, as you mentioned, going to be placed the site, which uh, we've negotiated the site lease agreement with the Department of Energy and have identified the site specifically on the Idaho National Laboratories uh, out there. Uh, we, we're in the process currently of locating where the footprint of the facility itself would be on this thousand acres that we've been provided uh, by the Department of Energy. Uh, we're working on that. We're also our trend, we're working obviously for interconnection capabilities. We're in the queue working with uh, Pacific Corp, Bonneville Power Administration, and Idaho Power Company on interconnection because that does you know that's been a long lead item. And uh, we're quietly and uh, and uh, intently watching New Scale go through the design certification process with the uh, New Year Regulatory Commission, which is moving just. Uh, very well. No, there's been no upsets. No, I think the only unexpected things happened is that that licensing process is ahead of schedule. That is something, from what I understand, not being in this business, that that's uh, a first for the NRC. Is the plan to build uh, 12 of these 60 megawatt units? Yeah, that's, you could house up to 12. Uh, if I could just uh, give you a little hint, though, on what, how you look at this, is that one of the, the unique things about this technology we like, these will be built in a factory and then hauled out. So where will the factory be? Okay, for the first one, that's a good one. The first one is going to be a, it's going to be a component constructed uh, concept at a, numerous facilities within North America, and we now have... Uh, uh, um, approval to actually use large foragings in uh, overseas. The United States currently doesn't have a large foraging capability, and so Korea, Japan, or Poland are all do. 
out there. And so there could be some pieces there. Dia, the Department of Energy, which controls that, uh, has uh, given that green light. We would hope that once uh, if there's enough orders down the road, that that would then come back to the United States as large, large forging capability uh, would come back in. And then what we're going to do is assemble them out in Idaho. Now, we don't have that very specific site. We're just starting to work on that. But I would speculate it would be in obviously the Idaho Falls area or the Blackfoot area due to rail access as well as highway access and then move down to the site. When these have to be refueled, are the units themselves taken away or is it refueled the way conventional nuclear plants are? Well, neither, actually. And so it's a unique process. So inside the, what we call the reactor building, where all 12 of these reactors will sit below grade in a pool of water, which is its uh, heat sink, ultimate heat sink, uh, there's a gantry crane, if you will, concept that will move the modules into individual bays. And then there's a refueling station that consists of uh, underwater uh, uh, attachments to put in the module. So we move one module out every two years. So the other 11 are operating, so we don't lose that production. That's why it's way different than a conventional nuclear refueling. And then uh, we go in, we do inspections, we can move the non-fueled area, we unbolt the things, uh, we move the non-fueled area for inspection purposes into a dry dock that's in the same building. And that process takes 10 days. And then it's put, it's in back, put back in its bay, and uh, it goes back to production. So it's much, much different. Where's the waste going to be kept? Is it going to be kept on site, or have you figured out the disposal aspect? Yeah, so that's a good question. And it's uh, so currently all nuclear, nuclear uh, generating stations, so let's just have to enter into a contract with the Department of Energy. We, we euphemism, we call it the standard contract. It's all the same for everyone. And it, it, has, it deals with the uh, waste, spent fuel, if you will. The industry likes that term better, but waste is what the public calls it. And that's what I call it. The waste. Uh, so when we refuel, we're basically refueling 20% of each of these very small cores. Remember, these are very small reactors. They're 76 feet tall, 15 feet in diameter, a half size uh, fuel rod assembly as you would have in a large one and much le- uh, you know, less fuel rods. We take 20% of that. They then stay in that same reactor building in a spent fuel area, which is still in the same water sink, sitting over in a, a different part of the building, uh, until they're cooled down to a temperature, which is uh, relatively quickly with this small amount, but we'll continue to store them in there. And then they go out into dry cast storage on site, which is a regulated uh, licensed uh, pad. It's just a concrete pad. It sits outside um, on our property. And um, basically, we have enough room to uh, take 60 years of 12 modules out uh, there. And, uh, well, we have more than that. So we can do that. We can do that for uh, 240 years worth. That is, one acre of land is all we need is to use for 60 um, years of operation of 12 modules on our spent fuel is one acre of land. Um, and we've got four set aside for that. So, and it'll stay there until the Department of Energy um, uh, comes and gets it. It's their responsibility to take it away from us. And in, in reality, you can say that the DOE, the Department of Energy, excuse me, is actually paying rent to the reactors entities right now in the United States to continue to hold that on their site. Eventually, they, they're supposed to do something. Now, that may be burying it like a Yucca Mountain proposal, or that may be reprocessing it 
which would reduce the size by 90% of what we're doing, get additional energy uh, there, and also reduce the half-life significantly in terms of its uh, his half-life capability. But currently in the United States, recycling is much, much more expensive than new fuel. And that's in part just my personal opinion due to the SALT treaty negotiations with Russia and the Soviet Union a number of years ago and the conversion of that weapon-grade uranium into a commercial-grade uranium that's mainly going on in Tennessee, and which has flooded the market. So, Doug, I know you've given a lot of thought about this technology. Uh, beyond UAMPs, I think you're committed to, to small modular reactors as a concept. How do you see it spreading across the United States? Will they primarily be plopped down on existing uh, nuclear facilities as added production? Will they be potentially at factory sites and closer to urban cores? How do you see this playing out in the next 10, 20, 30 years? Well, that's a very interesting proposal. So I would say initially, due to the benign nature of this technology, the NRC has already put out their topical papers on the safety, profoundly safer than any reactor we've ever seen. Uh, that what we would, I would think that the next proliferation of this, the subsequent deployments would be on existing brownfield sites of coal plants or gas plants. They only take, we only need 35 acres. Now, UAMS is also investigating dry cooling each of these individual 12 generators, if you will, so that we don't need to use water, even if water were available, which it is available to us. We just think that it may be a more important use of that water than just to cool for generation. And so uh, we would take a very small footprint. We could go to existing uh, brownfield sites, coal plants as an example, already have the transmission there, the lands there. And the other unique thing about this is these things are very simple. They're run basically by a computer. Obviously, we have humans involved in them. But 85% of the workforce can be, if you will, a high school educated level trained into this position very short period. So we, the workforce would be there as well. So I would think that would probably be a predominant way to move forward. If the technology allows to have, let's say, a singular module, if the economics are there, to do a single module somewhere, they could probably be closer to urban centers, uh, which would be beneficial in terms of heat, desalinization of water. One of the thing, one of the research projects we're doing with the Department of Energy with the first module is to look at commercial grade uh, hydrogen gas production for the transportation sector. Are you finding a lot of interest among utilities in the United States and pot potentially even overseas to what you're up to? Are a lot of people knocking on your door talking to you about this? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. They, they are. Uh, I mean, now, obviously, UAMS is focused and still aggregating up a, a group of utilities out here to uh, provide for the, all 12 modules if necessary. We're going through that, and, but there is an economy of scale of something less than 12. Uh, but uh, we are getting a lot of interest around the nation. Uh, uh, we've got interest in Canada now. Three utilities in Canada are looking at this technology very intently. As you mentioned, overseas, that, that is predominantly what it seems to be going on as they move off of uh, carbon fuels in the year, Europe and that even even with the discussions you see there. Uh, I know they've been in Asiatic countries uh, talking uh, extensively. And uh, I'd say there's, you know, I'd say there's a lot of fast followers behind this. 
<laughs> they're looking for us to get this first one done, if you will. And, um, and I, then I think you, you're going to see, there's been a lot of interest. I speak constantly around the nation on that, but here locally too, I'd like to say we're given public power. We have uh, addressed this with the public. We've had over 150 public hearings in uh, uh, 35 communities around the West on this topic. And currently we have, and that 35 represents communities that have decided to move forward at this level, continue to pursue. Uh, we've all, we're, we've set this project up that we could curtail the development of it. If for some reason we've missed something or it looks like it's going to do something like, you know, a Vogel or what happened in Georgia and South Carolina, these are things we're very concerned about. Uh, but we continually see every day a de-risking of the project, if I could use that phrase. Every day we learn more and more things get completed, and uh, it seems to, you know, we're, we're checking off the potential fatal flaws as we move forward. I believe it's on the New Scale site. It says that there have been market analyses pointing to the potential market of this growing for these small modular reactors to an in excess of $500 billion dollars. That that's almost more than we spend on electricity in a given year, so this it could be a huge, huge new sector in the United States. Um, are you pretty excited about this? And do you think this is going to catch a lot of people by surprise when it it finally takes off? Yeah, I think it is a disruptor as they start to pick up on it, and uh, and I am pleasantly surprised. Our communities are concerned. In, you know, on two concepts about greenhouse gases. One is climate change and the impact directly on the environment. The other thing is the impact of costs and associated uh, requirements by still providing power. Even with uh, climate change on top of this, with the work, we're going to need more electricity. We're going to need more power to have to deal with it. We want to deal with, uh, put it in that way. And so uh, we are, we're, we're really proud. I think I could say this about our communities that have signed up. And I know the staff and everybody at UAMPS, we think this is a game changer. We think this is a market-based solution for greenhouse gas and the electric sector uh, around the world. It's deployable, uh, it's available, it's it's inexpensive, it's floating, like I said, we're in the mid-$50 range on our projections, onto the grid right now, uh, and that's a levelized cost over 40 years. Uh, so we think it's it fits, and it's been, um, uh, you know, we are, I think, that's one thing people are starting to take pride in. We're, it's it's tough being first. You know, I can tell you that. It's not the, it's not the most pleasant position to be in. But it's also, uh, it's rewarding to start to realize that we're holding a leadership uh, position as well. And I do think it will, it will escalate and move itself forward. Talk a little bit about how these uh, modular reactors are dispatchable unlike conventional nuclear that's up and running and running and running, how will this follow um, and, and enable our renewables to be used most efficiently? Uh, so, yeah, the way they work, so they, uh, because of the core size and the heat content, we can move 20 to 100% dispatch on uh, just by moving, changing the heat content in the core. Now, normally when you do that in a large reactor, you cause uh, a buildup of a xenon gas, it starts to build up, which is a neutron inhibitor, and uh, in here. But because of the small size of this, anybody who watched the Chernobyl series would uh, remember this concept out there in terms of the xenon gas. Uh, we burn ourselves off in that movement, 
The other thing we can do is because we're at 60 megawatts and we're small, we can bypass the steam generator directly and descend the steam without changing the heat content of the, re- of the core uh, to a the condenser. And so we get instantaneous movement. And then the final concept is, is we can do both of those at the same time, either changing the heat content and bypassing to the core, and we can do it on 12 separate shafts. So you can see the flexibility sitting inside of that to deal with uh, problematic uh, load movements and or resource movements. Like, for instance, wind, the, very, the most difficult one to integrate. You know, solar is not so hard. And um, you know, as you opened up with it, if the sun's shining, we're getting solar. <laughs> I mean, we can dream of Canada, but not, we can't always really count on the wind. So uh, as we go into a much more higher penetrated renewable world, which we believe will be happening, uh, in this, in the, there's four states in the West that have adopted very aggressive clean energy standards uh, that we would fit in. So if we're in a 60% renewable world. Uh, we could fit that and integrate that beautifully. I think we could even go higher. It just depends on how much that you would put in there. Okay. Well, it's fascinating, and we're, we're going to check back with you from time to time to see how your project in Idaho is going. Great. Thanks all for listening to Grid Talk, and thanks to our guest, Doug Hunter, for bringing us up to date on the state of small modular reactors in Idaho and beyond. Well, thank you, Murray. You have been listening to Grid Talk. We encourage you to give this podcast a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. For more information or to subscribe, visit smartgrid.gov. If you like this installment today and want to hear more, check out our next installment, which will be Embracing Sustainability, a conversation with Ralph Izzo, the CEO of PSENG in New Jersey. Thank you and have a good day. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.